everyone. Welcome to HR Works, brought to you by BLR. I'm your host, Steve Bruce. HR Works provides clear, relevant, actionable information on topics that matter to HR professionals. When you're armed with best practices, plus the knowledge to keep your organization in compliance, HR works. Workplace teams can be the cornerstone to the success of an organization when they're functioning at a high level. But unfortunately, as nearly anyone who's been part of a workplace team can attest, that's not always the case. And the symptoms of a team that isn't working well are probably also too familiar. Unclear goals, poor communication, disagreements, and conflicts. And that can thwart teams from reaching their full potential and ultimately organizational or financial success. Today's guest, Justin Most, says there's a root cause to all of these symptoms. He says our teams are suffering because team members and leaders alike are settling for the status quo in their performance, in their work relationships, and in their life in general. He calls it habitual mediocrity, and he's developed a process to overcome it. Justin is a certified speaker, trainer, and coach for the John Maxwell team. In 2012, he founded Leader Legacy with a passion to develop leaders, inspire teams, and build legacies. And he's here today to share insights from his program, Seven Practices for Building Powerful Teams, to help you get started on the path to creating and fostering successful work teams. Justin, welcome to HR Works. Hey, Pete. Thanks a lot, man. I'm excited to be here. Great. So you believe, as we said, habitual mediocrity is the primary obstacle holding so many teams back from higher engagement, better relationships, a better culture, and better performance. Can you tell us more about this habitual mediocrity concept? You know, uh, yeah, absolutely. In, in um, There's an ancient Chinese proverb. It says, nations rise in rough boots and decline in carpet slippers. And I, I'm telling you what, I don't know uh, about you, but when you go into organizations and you hear the stats, I don't know, there's a lot of stats, about 80% of the workforce is unfulfilled and unsatisfied with what they do at work every single day. And 75% of the reason someone leaves their job is based on this relationship with their direct boss. And so habitual mediocrity, the, the, the essence of it is this. Uh, most of our life is run on habit. How I comb my hair, how I eat, how I drive, and, and how I lead myself is on, most of the time it's on autopilot. It's, it's unconscious living. You, you've heard of, um, uh, you know, when you, you go for a drive, and you, you have this destination, maybe it's two hours away, have you ever uh, driven somewhere at the end of your drive, you've gotten out of the car, and you don't remember, I mean, you don't remember the drive, you just, you know you got in your car and you drove, so, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And it, it's this, we have, I'm glad that we have habits, but I think that, that, that carpet slippers, we have not, it's not like I woke up today saying, I hope my life sucks but there's so many people that they have these habits that are actually in the way of their own desires. And so nobody wakes up saying, I hope I can live a mediocre life, but sometimes we just get there 
And we don't do the heavy lifting to say, why am I accepting mediocrity in my life? Because it's just normal. It's what we've gotten used to. And I just believe, man, if, if I don't change, nothing is going to change in my life. And I think a lot of teams are experiencing apathy and they're stuck. And they didn't wake up that day saying, I hope my team can be stuck and I hope that we can have a bunch of unengaged people. But there are habits that have created that environment and that culture. And you've heard the statement, culture eats strategy for lunch. And so I just think that we as Americans have kind of fallen asleep at the wheel and we have just decided uh, unintentionally that we're going to settle because it's just too hard. And I, I want to try to help wake some teams up, wake myself up. I want to put these work boots on every day. So that's kind of my mission. As I, I'm on a mission to declare war on habitual mediocrity. All right. Well, let's find out uh, a little more about it. Uh, so I, I understand habitual mediocrity in terms of uh, someone's individual performance and uh, the effect on productivity, product quality, customer service, and so on. But more specifically, yeah. how does habitual mediocrity affect relationships and team dynamics? Well, if you go back to, you know, most of our life is run on habit, I I've watched my own life in terms of my relationship with my family. And I've noticed I have some emotional habits when, you know, I've, I told you I had a 15-year-old and I've, I've got a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. And I've noticed when one of my kids does something that bothers me, I have an emotional reaction. And sometimes, if I'm truthfully, you know, real honest with you, sometimes I look back and I'm like, what? Wow! How come that came out of my mouth? And I realized it came out because I had this emotional habit of frustration when I when I see one of my kids doing something stupid. And I, you know, working with so many teams that I do, it's the same thing in the workplace. We have emotional habits when someone does something that doesn't make sense. We have an emotional response. And we, are, we have relationships after years and years and years of doing it the same way. Uh, people draw lines in the sand, and we have taken relationships for granted. We're no longer working intentionally to build some of these relationships because it's become a habit. My, the way I think about someone is a habit. And if I'm going to start believing in them, I have to change the way I think about what they do. Even if I like it or don't like it, I need to just become more intentional about how I'm engaging those relationships because nothing's going to change if I don't change. Okay, well let's um, talk now about uh, some practical steps people can take. Could you give us a brief overview of your seven practices that you recommend and how our listeners can leverage that uh, content most effectively? Yeah, so basically, these seven practices, there's, there's uh, two, two parts to the seven practices that determine team success. Number, number one, the first foundational practice is if you were to draw uh, a diagram, it would be like a, a bullseye. There's three circles you know, centered within each other. So that the outer ring is, is what I would call the foundational practices, and that is clarify the win, execute the win, and celebrate and evaluate the win. Every team has to have a vision. It's got to be really clear. It informs everybody of the, the work required to do. 
and then we have to execute that win, and that's basically the, the, what, what do we do with our time? How are we spending our time on executing the win? What did Thomas Edison say? Vision without execution is hallucination. And then the third practice is celebrate and evaluate the win. So I'll just start by saying, you know, these are seven practices that, that help you build a more powerful team. They are not laws. There's a lot of speakers, even, you know, my mentor, John Maxwell, he has the 21 irrefutable laws of leadership. Mine aren't laws. Uh, mine are very simple. They're not rocket science. Pretty much everybody I talk to already knows these practices. Maybe they haven't heard it in the way that I describe it, but, but my practices, they only work if you practice them. So, it, you know, the whole foundation of this model is based on, you probably know what I'm going to tell you, but my question when you listen to these practices is to ask yourself, am I practicing this practice so it will benefit my relationships and my teams and will I get a better result because I'm actually practicing it? So the outer ring... The foundational practices are those three, clarify, execute, celebrate, and evaluate. The inner ring is what I call momentum-building practices. So the inner ring is much more about the emotional IQ. It's much more about am I building trust, am I building influence, am I learning how to leverage the role that I have within the organization in, in really paying attention you know, a massive awareness of that, that social awareness, that leader awareness, and, and these are momentum-building practices. So practice number four is USDR communication. Use simple, direct, respectful communication. You have to have a process of communicating that's effective. Practice five is refuse to be offended. Practice six is remove the ripple. I think there's so many organizations and so many leaders that they do not view their job as a leader of removing the issues that are causing destructive pain to their team. And so this, this is just puts a, a, a laser on, if you're a leader, if you want to build your team, one of your primary purposes is to remove the issues that are holding the team back. And then the last practice kind of puts the glue to the whole program is own it daily. That's the seventh practice. And I'll tell you that all of these practices can work simultaneously together to, to build that synergy required, but individually, people are at different places, and so I would just say, listen to the practices and see which one do you need to practice more effectively, and, and maybe this could be helpful. Well, I think this is going to help me. I like these seven <laughs> points. You're, uh, let's Good. talk a, a little bit more in depth about a few of them. Um, your fourth practice, uh, USDR communication. Use simple, direct, respectful communication. You say that all of these attributes of communication are essential in effectively uh, communicating and that they work together to strengthen everyone's understanding of the vision and the relationships that drive your team's success. So could you expand on that a little bit, USDR communication? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's really simple. I, I, when I look at USDR, let me unpack it. The definition of use, use simple, direct, respectful communication is simply this. Do this often. You have to use communication on a regular basis. I was working for a, a client of mine. They had 48 managers. Uh, they were managing 800 employees. And about half of the managers I was working with 
didn't have a regular weekly meeting, which means they weren't using communication often enough to drive the clarity of what the win is. They weren't using communication often enough to drive clarity on the stuff they're supposed to be executing, and they weren't using communication often enough to be able to evaluate the success or the failure. Like if, if you and I, I don't know if you're a, a, a Detroit uh, Lions fan or not, Steve, but if you and I bought the Detroit Lions and we decided it was a good idea to buy, uh, you know, hire a videographer to, to, to tape all of the games, and if we said, hey, all right, we have all these games, we're going to watch them once a year, how effective do you think watching game film, if we own the Detroit Lions, is going to be? If it's just once a year. Yeah, you're not going to get very far that way. So so they just aren't using communication often enough. So that's what U stands for, the U in USDR communication. Simple is, is you know, we have to make it simple. Uh, less is more. So many times organizations have 29 strategic objectives within the year for a department to try to own. And, you know, it, it becomes that river versus the swamp. A river has banks. It goes in one direction. And a swamp goes in every direction. It has no banks. You have mission creep. And so people are inundated with all kinds of complexity. And the goal is you have to communicate simply. That's why you have to clarify the win for that specific role so people have great clarity as to what is it that you want me to do. And so you don't speak without a title. I mean, you're supposed to speak without a title and get to the, the guts of what is this? what do you need this person to do? Make it simple. And then the direct and the respectful, this is, this is where I think it has the most rub. As a manager or as a leader, I, I think people go in two camps. Camp one is, I'm really good at being direct. I don't really care if you like me or not, Steve. I'm going to tell you like it is, and I could care less if we have a relationship. You just got to get her done. So I'm direct. Well, if I'm direct without being respectful, when I leave the room, you're going to do whatever the heck you want to do. Because you, there's no rapport between us. You're just, in fact, I'll try to avoid you if all I get from you is this thumb pressing down on me and, and I get this feeling like I, I'm, I'm dirt to you. You're just so direct. You never recognize me. You're blunt. There's no relational connection. I'm not going to give you my heart when I come into work. In fact, I'm going to try to avoid you. So, so the direct people, maybe they tell the truth, but they don't know how to build any relationship around it. The opposite is when you have the, the, the manager that wants to be really respectful, but they don't want conflict. They don't want to talk about the difficult things. They're unwilling to be direct. So, so they're the ones that just, they just, they're the manager that wants to be liked. You know, I think HR people have this a lot. They are responsible for a lot of stuff, and, and they listen to a lot of stuff, but, but I've found that a lot of times HR people, they struggle with being liked or being direct, and I simply use simple, direct, and respectful, meaning I can't just be your best friend and, and I can't just have you like me. I want to give you the truth, too. So when I give you the truth directly and I have this, this massive care and concern for you, all of a sudden those team members start looking to me and they trust me because I'm, yes, I'm direct, but I'm super respectful. So that's really the, the combination is direct and respectful is two different skills 
that you have to be really good at both of them. Yeah, I can see that's a powerful combination. Do you do you have any tools that can help people improve uh, USDR? So that's a great question. I do have some tools. There's one book that I would recommend reading. Um, John Maxwell has a book. It's called Everyone Communicates, Few Connect. And he unpacks what it means to really connect with people. And at the end of the day, you're communicating is just getting information out there. But connecting means there's a level of respect and there's a level and a willingness to be forthright on it. But but USDR and all the practices that you and I are going to talk about, it's really about awareness, leader awareness or manager awareness. And so here's a couple questions that I would ask you. Um, number one, when you hear the USDR communication, use simple, direct, and respectful which ones do you need to improve? Like I had one manager, uh, he's the guy that said, well, I don't even have meetings, they're a waste of my time. And he's also the same manager that says, yeah, my team feels kind of disconnected, they don't really know what they're supposed to be doing. And, and the reason is they weren't using communication often enough. So his area, he was, he was direct, he was respectful, his team just didn't have the tools. So, so he had to implement weekly meetings because he wasn't using communication often enough. Uh, simple is how many goals does your team have? Ask, the, ask yourself the question, am I putting too much on my team? Is it, is it creating a swamp environment that everything matters? Or, or have I dialed it in so there's just a few key goals that drives all of our work? Is it simple to understand? And then the next question I would ask is, in using USDR communication, are you more direct or are you more respectful? And which one of those do you tend, which one is more natural for you? And usually the one that is more unnatural is the one that you struggle in, and that's, that's where you need to improve. I've heard some people say you're, you know, focus on your strengths, and I 100% agree with that unless your weaknesses are overshadowing your strengths. And so I would ask you to think through, am I more direct? Am I more respectful? What can I do to, to uh, being a five at both of these is not acceptable as a manager. You have to be, you know, proficient in both at a high level. And then the last question I'd ask you for, for a tool, just an awareness tool, is who are the key people that I find it most difficult to communicate with? It's kind of the 80-20 rule, you know, the Pareto's principle? Maybe you don't have a bad relationship with everybody, but that one relationship that is difficult, it can tend to make the whole batch of apples kind of cruddy. And so I would just say one relationship that is, is important in your sphere, in your work, if it's not healthy, how can you use simple, direct, respectful communication to bring health to that relationship? That's very helpful. Now, how about the fifth practice? Uh, that was refused to be offended. I mean, I guess it's no fun to work with offended team members, but why is this singled out as a practice? Oh, man. I, you know, offense, offense kills the relationship. I, I you know, in, in working with so many teams across the country, you know, the reason someone leaves the job is they leave 
the relationship. It's typically not because they say, you know what, I'm just not passionate about the vision of the company. Usually, they've, they've gotten offended or frustrated by the way leadership is treating them, or that's their excuse, okay? Whether they're right or wrong, it is their perspective. And so I, I think a lot of people leave. In fact, I did a study on this. Uh, uh, some, I forget the document, it was a government document. The average younger baby boomer has had 11.4 jobs in the past 30 years. 11.4, that means every 29 months, that person is hopping from one job to the next. And if I were to build a dynamic sports program, do you think I could do it if I, if I had a different head coach every 29 months? The answer is no. And you look at, you know, the marriage stats. I think it's, what, 50% of marriages end in divorce. Most of the time, it's because one of those parties got offended by their spouse. And over time, that offense became bitterness. And over time, that bitterness became apathy. And over time, that apathy said, I just don't care. So in a marriage, that ends in a divorce. But in work, here's the weird thing. Maybe they've divorced the company in their, their uh, heart and in their head, but they still show up for a paycheck. <laughs> and so refuse to be offended says, if you want to build a better relationship with your team members, you can't get offended. You've you got to refuse to be offended. And there's a couple things you can do. But I, I just think you look at the stats, you know, 88% of the workforce is, is unfulfilled. There's another stat about unengaged employees or highly disengaged employees. And I think it's because we're offended. Someone did something to us, and we're bothered by it. And when you're offended, Steve, you know, who are you thinking about? You're thinking about yourself. You're not, when you're offended, it's not because you're like, well, I was thinking so hard about how I could help you that you've offended me. No, you're offended because you're thinking about yourself. And so the goal is to recognize where am I getting offended and why would I give someone else that kind of power in my life? So offense, I think, is the cold stone killer. Of, it, it kills the morale. It destroys trust. It slows communication. There's a real cost to being offended in the workplace. And I think a lot of people, uh, because we're living in this habitual mediocrity, we just haven't coined it. We haven't named it. But I think offense and broken relationships is doing more damage in the productivity of our companies than we'd really want to admit. Yeah, I can certainly see that. I'm wondering, uh, once again, let me ask you uh, if you have any tools uh, or methods that can help uh, leaders work with team members uh, on this. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there, there's... There's four, there's four secret, I call it the secret sauce of how you can refuse to be offended. Number one, you know, we have to gain awareness of when and where you get offended. You know, when you're dealing with um, uh, the end of the month, the selling cycle, if, if, you get, if, if you get stressed out easily, it's probably, if you have a manager or someone on your team that gets stressed out easily and at the end of the month it's crunch time, it's probably not a good idea to go have a conversation that's really, really important in the middle of that person's most stressful week of the month. And so gain awareness of when and where you get offended. In fact, 
I'll be honest with you. My wife and I, I've been, I, I, I married my high school sweetheart, so I proposed to her when she was a senior in high school. She's a type A driven, she's salutatorian, big time athlete. She just, she's a type A independent, hard driving woman. I love her to death, but I'm also type A. I'm also independent. I'm also a, a, a runner. I played a little college basketball. So you've got two type A people and you want good type A people in your organization. They get stuff done. But in our home, when, you know, I'll be honest, sometimes it's difficult to be simple, direct, and respectful when you know each other's quirks. <laughs> and so the refuse to be offended is knowing when and where do I get offended. And at the end of the day, I've worked really, really hard. And my wife and I have this rule. We refuse to talk about anything of real substance and importance past 9 p.m. And I can't tell you how many times that it saved my wife and I from a blowout argument simply because I've recognized and she's recognized when and where we are most susceptible, where we could be most irritable, where we know the conversation is going to go south. So the first question is gain awareness of when and where you get offended. Number two is you have to remove the emotion from the situation. You've got to be able to look at this problem objectively and what I've found is we are in the habit of looking at everything emotional and we, we, we take it as a personal attack. And so we have to say, okay, this is when I get offended or who offends you the most? So just recognize the people and the situations where you get offended and then how do you remove the emotion? Number three, this is become grateful for that person, process, or situation. And, and there's real science behind this. It is impossible for your brain to be grateful towards somebody and bitter towards somebody at the same time. And, and the truth about offense is offense is a choice. Nobody made you got, get mad. Nobody made you get frustrated. You allowed yourself. You had the, the, you had the choice, but it's a habit. And so you don't even think it's a choice. So instead of allowing your habitual nature to take over when someone does something stupid and it offends you, instantly let that be a trigger and say, you know what, I'm going to be great. I'm going to choose to be grateful for this person. I'm going to choose to be grateful for the situation. And it's impossible to be grateful and bitter or offended towards someone at the same time. So choose gratitude. You can do that. And then the last one is gain different perspectives. So many times uh, we are offended because we are only looking at the situation through the lens of our, our own perspective. And again, you have to get your eyes off of yourself, off of your perspective, and you need to stop and say, well, I wonder what their perspective is. Get, get like literally stand up, walk right next to them and say, you know what, I, I'm so good at seeing this from my perspective, but I, I, I need to see it from your perspective. What do you think the problem is? So those are the four things. Gain awareness, remove your emotion, become grateful for that person, process, or situation, and then get a different perspective. You, you, you do not have all the right answers. Well, this is great. I'm getting marriage counseling as well as uh, HR counseling. <laughs> That's awesome. That's funny. So uh, let's talk about the sixth practice. That's called remove the ripple. Well, what does that en entail, and uh, how does it relate to building a powerful team? 
So let, can I just go back to the refuse to be offended for one second? Sure. So, so here's a couple questions. When are you offended? And, and here's the other one. When do you offend others? You know, it's one, you know, this practice is not for you to take back into the workplace and say, oh, yeah, that person, they're really offensive. Practices first need to be lived out personally. So I just want to ask you, when, when, when do you offend others? Now, what are you doing that might be causing other people to be offended, and and what what's causing that offense? Uh, get at the root of that. So so, I said these practices work together. So if you think about USDR communication, refuse to be offended, and then remove the ripple. Remove the ripple is basically this. Every organization has issues. Every organization has problems. And the best teams that I've found is they do not let the ripples, the issues, the problems hold their team back. They have a habit of removing the issues that are causing pain to their team. And if you think of a ripple like a... Uh, if I'm holding a stone, I've got a little pond here, and I throw that stone in the pond, it's going to create what they call the ripple effect. And, and those ripples, even a little rock that gets thrown in a pond, those ripples will spread so far that they will reach the boundaries, the shoreline of that entire pond. And, and it's just the same way with our issues. You know, we're in the habit. You know, we want to take the, the path of least resistance. So we, we see a problem, and we might, we might try to avoid it. We might just try to sweep it underneath the rug. We might throw it in the closet and hope nobody notices it, when the truth is the white elephant in the room that nobody's talking about, it is doing damage to the organization. That 500-pound gorilla that nobody's talking about, you're walking on eggshells over time. The temperature of your room, because there's dozens of un, unaddressed issues, it is destroying the DNA of your team because someone is unwilling to address the issues. So practice six is all about you have to take ownership of the ripple, the issue, and you got to hit it head on by using simple, direct, respectful communication and knowing that you're going into the the fire, you have to be willing and you have to make the decision, I'm not going to be offended when when people start throwing dark to me because my desire is I just want to remove the issue. I don't care who's at fault. I don't care who's going to get the credit. I don't care who's going to solve it. But my job as a manager is to remove these issues so I can bring help to my team. All right. That's uh, great helping us to uh, define what a ripple is. But I understand you go farther than that. You have two types of ripples and three levels of ripples. Can you unpack those yeah. for us? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's, there's two types, two types of issues. So the definition of a ripple is anything that causes destructive pain. So the two types are those that you cannot control and those that you can control. Now, if I go back to habitual mediocrity and you have people, you know, at the water the water break or the, the, the water station and they're talking or if you go to the teacher's lounge or if you go to the break room, people are always talking about their issues. And what I've found is the habitual mediocre people, it's easy, it's, it's second nature for us to talk about the issues that we cannot control. That way I'm not responsible. I can point the finger at you, Steve, 
I can point the finger at that department. I can throw anybody under the bus and say, yeah, it's just the way that we are. You know, we're, we're jacked up here or whatever. And, and so we like to talk about the issues that we can't control. So the, the two types are issues that you cannot control and the issues that you can control. And I think if we're really passionate about helping our team succeed, we have to address both of them. But the first issues you need to address are the issues that you can control. And the second thing is those are, those are the issues that are within your sphere. Those are the issues that are holding your department back. You've got to take ownership of them. But also recognizing what are the other issues, maybe the issues I can't control, and that's where I get into the three levels of ripples. So the three levels of ripples are organizational-wide issues. Maybe it's executive policy that is causing destructive team to a department. Maybe it's an HR process that just is a little bit painful and quirky. Maybe it's an IT process. But organizational-wide issues affect the entire organization. And, and a lot of times those issues stay in the organization because that executive team is kind of doing that white elephant in the room. Nobody wants to talk about it because it's the way we've always done it. The, the second level of ripple is departmental ripples. These are the, primarily these ripples, they impact the individuals and teams associated with that department. So if it's in the engineering or if it's in the sales team, you know, if, if, I'm, the, uh, if, if I'm on a remote location but there's an issue within the facilities department at the corporate office, I'll never even know about it. But if you go to that corporate office into that facilities department, it, it's like a bee's nest. You can, you can feel, it's palpable, you can feel the frustration in that department, but the sales team is, you know, they're clueless to what's going on. So departmental issues oftentimes are, those are within the control of that departmental manager. So you just have to recognize, is this an organizational-wide issue? Is this a departmental issue? And then the third level is what I call the individual ripples. These are the issues that go wherever the person goes, because these are the behaviors, the attitudes. Uh, you could also, in parentheses, put down uh, uh, drama queen for the individual ripples. Now, drama queen, in my term, uh, that drama queen can be male or female. I mean, I'll just be honest. In my family, I'm more of the drama queen than my wife is. Every, every single uh, family uh, marriage book that we've ever read in the middle of the book, my wife and I always have this stupid conversation where she looks at me and she says, how come you're always the woman in the relationship? <laughs> and that's just because I'm a little bit more emotional. And so I know that, but, but you have to recognize, is this an individual ripple? So am I going to have to have a conversation with an individual person about their behavior or attitude or their emotions? Uh, and you know, as well as I do, all of these ripples, can affect the organization, but the most destructive one is the individual ripple because they spread like cancer. If I'm not happy with you, Steve, I'll go to my break room and I'll throw you under the bus, I'll give you evil eye, I'll avoid you, but I'll tell all my friends about you, and that's where you have all this backstabbing and bitterness, and that's why people get frustrated with each other, then they start backing away, and they start not working as hard, they go from an A player to a B player to a C player, They'll still collect the pay. And these individual ripples, these drama queens are killing us. So we've got to remove them. Not remove the people, remove the behavior, remove the emotion, address it. Let's figure out how to bring these people to health.
Well, this is great. I think we've got a good understanding of the seven practices. I'm wondering now, um, in, a, in a tangible way, do you have examples of, of how these practices have helped your clients? Yeah, it's been, it's been amazing. I work with um, lots of larger organizations and a lot of small ones too, but one organization I was working with, they had 20, 20 managers. They were overseeing about 1,500 employees, um, and this one manager oversaw about 300 employees. And when I addressed the topic, I, once a month I worked with these managers, and I said, you have to remove the ripple. So many times we're just not aware, we're not paying attention that that's our job to remove the ripple. And so when, when I put the action of what is the biggest ripple that is in your way, what is stopping you, immediately to this manager, one of his department managers came to mind. He said, Justin, I've been in this organization for nine months. He goes, I'm a, I'm a new general manager. He goes, I, I've been in this organization for nine months, and I saw from day one that this one manager was burning every bridge around him. Everybody hated him. He had the most seniority in the organization within our store. He said, but everybody hated him, and he was good at, at the execution of his job when it came to the stuff, but he had zero relational capital. And he said, when you challenged me to remove the ripple, he goes, I knew I had to have a simple, direct, respectful conversation with this guy. And he goes, Justin, I have avoided that issue for nine months, and it, it was causing massive pain to my team. He goes, so I went and I had this conversation. And he goes, I gave him a picture. I clarified the win for him. He goes, I gave him a picture of this is where you are, this is where I need you to be, and if he's not willing to work for it, then we've got to find a new home for him. And, and he said, Justin, it was amazing. He goes, I had this respectful conversation with, where I painted the picture that I valued him, that he had to change. He said, Justin, this guy looked at me and goes, you know, thank you. He goes, I knew, and he used an expletive, I knew I was being a jerk to these people, but, but nobody called me out. And he said, thank you for the opportunity. Yes, I want to get better. And this manager put in a, like, he took this, this, this department manager through a process. This guy was so bad that when they went to the assistant manager in his department, that assistant manager said, there's no way I want to help him. I'm, I'm out. So they found a different place for him. And the HR department came back a few months later and said it was the most successful turnaround story of a manager in their entire organization that they asked this manager that just was willing to remove the ripple. They asked him if he put, the, put together a document of, of turnaround manager, like a case study of how to turn around managers. And it all started because the guy was willing to address a ripple. And so, uh, again, none of these are laws. These are practices. You can, you can go home right now and go to your workplace, and if there's a ripple, you can identify and say, is there a person I need to address? Is there, is there a process I need to address? Do I need to talk to my boss? And you can remove it. And so that, that's, a, that's a practical story of if you're not willing to be aware of your issues, they're not going to go away. All right. Well, that's very helpful. I appreciate you sharing that. Let's um, take it uh, from a 30,000-foot level uh, the building powerful teams model. What are the critical takeaways you want to uh, leave our listeners with? Actionable points that uh, that are most important and would add value to someone's team right now. So, from an actual standpoint, 
uh, again, I'm going to go back to questions, and I'm I'm going to ask I'm going to ask everybody that's listening uh, right now. Get out a sheet of paper, and I want you to ask yourself where. Do I think I have some habitual mediocrity in my life that's holding me back? Where do I have some habitual mediocrity in my life that's holding me back? And once you identify that, anywhere where there's a relationship, if there's any mediocrity in any relationship, what relationships are at most risk? And so I would draw a circle. You know, in my life, there's a, a couple circles. There's my, my career, my mission, my job. What are the key relationships that have to be really strong for me to succeed in my role? What are the relationships that have to be really strong in my family? That's the inner circle, those key relationships in your job and those key relationships in your home. Is there any breakdown in my relationships? Is there any habitual mediocrity? And don't, it's really easy to look at what other people aren't doing. That's not, the pur- that's not the purpose of my seven practices for d- determining team success. Because it's always easy to find the fault in somebody else. So this is, a, a, my, my challenge is directly to you, whoever's listening, is where do you display habitual mediocrity in your ability to build relationships? And then number two, how are you going to become more simple more direct and more respectful and be careful if you have a fractured relationship you might have to back off the directness a little bit and add some serious respect because you need to build the rapport of the relationship before they're even going to be willing to talk to you maybe you need to go say you're sorry part of remove the ripple if it's an individual relationship thing is is letting go like letting go of that offense in forgiving that person, not because what they did was okay and you're over it, simply because you need to get healthy and you need to not let not let them have that kind of power in your life and so that you can move forward in building strength in that relationship. So identify the relationships that are broken and then figure out what am I going to do to use simple, direct, respectful communication to bring that relationship back into health. And then the last question I would say is what are the issues? So not just the relationships, but across the organization, there are processes, there are decisions being made, and there are individuals or key relationships that that there there are ripples. And what are, prioritize those ripples. Make a list of all the issues in your organization and make a commitment that every week you're going to start knocking out those issues one by one. And not that you turn all your attention to the issues. Remember, clarifying the win. What do you really want? But if you don't take care of the issues, what you really want, you're never going to get because the issues are going to drown you out. So at a 30,000-foot level, that would be my best advice, is make sure you are owning those issues on a regular basis. Well, I really appreciate you sharing this with us. And I, um, I've got a new way to look at my teams and uh, my relationships. So... Uh, thanks so much for providing our listeners with this great program. Man, Steve, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show, and I, I wish the best for you. I know you guys have a lot of impact with HR folks all across the country, so hopefully this has added value to everybody listening. Yeah, I think we will. I think it will. So, uh, listeners, please let me know what HR Works should cover next. 
sbruce at blr.com. And then uh, one final thing, if you want to learn more about uh, Justin's seven practices for building powerful teams, you go to uh, justinmost.com. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Bruce for HR Works. 